Welcome to the Living Jewishly Podcast. I'm Dr. Elliot Malamud. And I'm Rabbi Yossi Saperman. We talk about Judaism, and we talk about living, and we talk about everything in between. Judaism is not nearly as boring as I thought it was now that I talk to Elliot regularly. We're not selling you on Judaism. We're not selling you on living. We're just trying to get you inside of our brains, the way we think about stuff. By getting you into our Jewish brain, you'll argue a lot, you'll disagree, you'll love, you'll eat, you'll have a really good time, you'll learn a lot of things, and you know what? You might actually find that all those 3,000 years have been worth it. I'm starting. This is podcast number two about Passover. Elliot, recently I was traveling and I had breakfast in a friend's home and she said I made you country biscuits using my family's hundred year old sourdough recipe and I said really she said yeah you see that ugly jar over there it's covered with grunge that is a hundred year old starter we've had it in our family for over a hundred years and I said to myself how do I explain to this woman that if you were Jewish, it would be almost impossible to have a hundred-year-old starter in your family for because every Passover you have to get rid of this seor or the sour, the zayer or zor, and you can't have it because it is fundamentally a blob of fermentation. Right, it's leavened. Right. So the biscuits were outstanding. Sourdough biscuits from hundred-year-old recipe was incredible, and I was in part of the world where a young man of German extraction had been kidnapped by, I believe it was the Apache or the Comanche, and he wrote a book called Nine Years Amongst the Indians about how he became part of the, the culture and his challenges and how he returned to real life and how it was he never really restored his relationships in a healthy way. But so that's where I was, and the sourdough. And I'm thinking about the notion that you can sell your chametz, which means if you do own a 100-year-old sourdough, every year you've got to find yourself a non-Jew and sell it. And the conversation for me is, let's say you believe in that stuff, where you can sell your sourdough and it's not really yours for the eight days and you reclaim it afterwards and that's the way a lot of kosher bakeries operate. Otherwise, they couldn't get their rye bread started quickly enough after Passover. Is that the way we are meant to live by the law? In other words, are we meant to find ways to skirt the law or are we meant to observe the law strictly? So if it says don't own or have sourdough in your home, does that mean get rid of it or does that mean sell it off and then rebuy it? What does it really mean? I mean, it feels like you're asking a larger question about religion, which is the classic question of whether religion is simply interpretation or there's some literal meaning to the text. You know, it goes back to the 19th century where, you know, you had Protestant interpretation of the Bible, which was like literalist. Six days means six days and this means this. Jews were never literalists, right? That, that was our calling card. That was our great triumph. You know, we, we you know, puffed out in pride that we always interpret the text as always subject to uh, human interpretation. So look, I mean, I think about the selling of chametz as cool. Let's do that, right? The original context, of course, in the Tosefta is that two people are on a boat. And it's like, uh-oh, I forgot. I have chametz. So there's a certain absurdity to the case, but it's like... 
So what are the, what's the aura of that case? Emergency, emergency. Not this like well worked out, we go online, we have forms, you know, three weeks ahead of time and we're selling our stuff down to and what's in your basement and what's in the drawer in the den. And it's absurd. It bears no relationship to the original thing. So what does it mean? It means that once the idea took hold in Jewish life, we ran with it. We're going to find all sorts of creative ways to sell the thing. Okay. I've heard people complain. Female friends of mine have complained. Gee, you guys are really creative with the chametz thing. Why not be creative with like women who want to get a divorce? Why not get creative with people who are gay? Why not be creative? Let's be creative. Since we're so creative with your money, let's be creative with other stuff. So I'm glad you talked about creativity because I believe that Passover actually is one of the most creative holidays in the sense that what happens is before Exodus, the entire people of Israel are commanded to put on a play. Everybody in your own home or your own little environment they're putting on a little show. It's a theater. It's called a theater of community in which you gather together. You have to have a lamb. The lamb has to be enough for as many people as it can, as can eat. You can't leave any over the next morning. So you really got to get rid of all of it. So you invite 30 to 60 people. So now suddenly you go from having these little tiny blocks of individuals to suddenly having large family units or friends. And it says specifically, you and your neighbor... It rarely talks about neighbors, but it says you and your neighbor should take the lamb and make it a family event. And at the event, you sit down at the table, and you don't just eat. You act as if you're about to leave Egypt, your loins girded, your staff in your hand, your sandals on your feet. And then what do you do? You eat matzah, the poor man's bread. You eat maror. And you basically act as if you're in a rush, as if you don't have time. Of course, you eat the Passover as like your dessert. And um, This is before the Exodus. They don't even know what's going to happen, but they act it out. Sure enough, midnight comes, and it turns out that it's actually, they predicted correctly, because they are in a rush and they have to leave. How creative is that? That's pretty awesome that people get to act out their ideas. The weird part of it is, this goes again to this literalist thing, there's two narratives of matzah. The first one is, we ate it because it's the poor man's bread or bread of poverty, so we were exhibiting our recognition of the fact that we were living in tough times, but we're in a better place now. The next one is, we were in a rush to leave Egypt, we didn't have enough time to bake our bread, we put it out on the hot rocks the next morning, and boom, we had like these flatbreads, because who's got time when you're in a rush? You got three minutes to get a hot rock and put a, a lafa on there. And which one has become the popular notion? Most people, if you ask them, why do we eat matzah? They'll say, because we left Egypt in a hurry. Right. And that is the one that is given in the Haggadah. And think how bizarre the narrative is. Just think about this. The whole narrative is bizarre. You've got a situation where you've got a people who have enslaved for 400 years. Now, it seems perfectly obvious to me that if God wants to liberate them, he can snap his fingers, Dorothy, and we won't be in Kansas anymore, like in three seconds. Instead, there's this long protracted process, 10 plagues, and what is it? It's God's drama, it's God's show. He's, it's, it's God saying, I'm the man. And he tells all of this to Moshe right at the beginning, at the burning bush, before he's even gone back to Egypt. Here's what's going to happen, Moshe. You're going to go in there. You're going to ask to 
Pharaoh to let the Jewish people go. He's going to say no. I'm going to harden his heart, so he's definitely going to say no. We're going to bring all this, these signs and wonders. And then you're going to go out with gold and silver. It's like, a, I've scripted it all, Moshe. Nothing's going to be surprising here. So, A, if you wanted them to leave, if it was really, if the Exodus was really about freeing the slaves, it would have happened right at the beginning. I don't think it's about freeing the slaves. I think it's about God telling Pharaoh and the Jewish people and the world, and most importantly, the reader, I'm the guy. There's nothing else. Don't worship anything else. Don't be involved in anything else. Don't fall in love with anything else because I'm the man. Even if you want to say that he wants to go through the plagues, when's the most logical time for them to leave Egypt? Plague of darkness. Nobody's going to see you. Why am I saying all this to you? Because I've always found that business about having to leave in a hurry so weird. You were there for hundreds of years. God didn't seem to be in any kind of hurry because we're going to go through all of these plagues over and over and over again. And then at the last minute, you don't have 18 minutes. How strange is that? Right? I've often thought that maybe the idea here is, and I don't know, is that sometimes when you get that moment of clarity, when you realize like, I got to do this, I got to, you know, take that course or ask that person out or, you know, you got to do it right away. You can't think, can't think. It seems strange because you've sat on it and sat on it and sat on it for years, but then it comes to you and it's like, I got to do this right now, right now. I got to make this phone call right now. So I think that's what it is. Well, that is exactly the story of fermentation. Fermentation takes time. You can make bread in five minutes. You take water, you take flour, you knead it together, you put it on a hot stone, guess what you got? You got a pita. It doesn't rise, it's flat, it's dense, but you got bread. Okay. You want fermented, you want fluffy, it takes a lot of time. There's a time in which you have fermented bread, that's when you're settled. When the time comes that you gotta go, no time. Yeast is not fundamentally bad. Sourdough is not fundamentally bad. Bread is not fundamentally bad. It just represents a different concept of time. And when it's time to find your exodus, you don't have the time. You just got to go. You go for the flat because that is fast, easy, and convenient. When the moment of clarity comes, you take it. Elliot, we're done. I'm sorry for screaming at you for the last half hour, but it was... I learned something. That's okay. I don't mind you screaming. Did you learn anything? I learned that you scream at me a little bit. <laughs> I want to thank everyone who listened. Please send us your feedback at hello at livingjewishly.org. We would absolutely love to hear from you. 